We're going to continue this morning in our study in the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning, but it really is uh, needful for us to kind of backpedal a little bit so that uh, we can kind of get a sense for what is actually going on as we read this text here this morning before us. Recall that in the first chapter of Acts, Jesus had told his disciples they were to wait in Jerusalem until that which was promised was to come. And it was to come on a specific date and in a specific way that had been predetermined by the Lord God before the foundation of the world. It ties very, very well with the feasts of Israel. We've talked about that. This particular feast that is basically actually fulfilled by the appearance of the Holy Spirit on this very, very special day that Jesus told them to wait for, that is a feast of Pentecost, known by the Jews as the Feast of Weeks. It's 50 days, that's why we get the term Pentecost, from that fact, 50 days from the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus was in fulfillment of another feast, the Feast of First Fruits, because he, having been raised from the dead, the first and only one at that time ever to be raised from the dead in terms of his becoming a different, but yet the same. He was resurrected into a glorified body. Not the body of blood and flesh and bone like he once had. He still had flesh and bone, but not blood. He drained all of his blood at the cross. But he wasn't spirit. He was flesh and bone. He appeared to his disciples. He appeared to as many as 500 at one time, according to Paul in his letter to 1 Corinthians. He appeared to Peter separately, as well as his brother, half-brother James, and the apostles, the twelve minus one, ultimately saw the resurrected Christ. There was absolutely no doubt in any of their minds that he was indeed alive. And that's the central focus of Peter in his presentation to the Jews in Jerusalem where they have just received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them in that upper room experience They came out of that experience and Peter immediately preached the most wonderful first sermon of the church's time. In a very, very short period of time, in chapter 2, we saw 3,000 souls come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's a pretty substantial, remarkable result, don't you think? In chapter 3, we're not sure exactly how much more time has gone by, but we are told that there were things that were going on with those 3,000 souls that were saved. There was fellowship. They were with one accord, meeting together for prayer, for fellowship, for the breaking of bread. They were very, very happy to be born-again believers in Jesus Christ. They were celebrating their relationship with, with the Lord and with each other. It was a wonderful, remarkable time. Now in chapter 4, we're going to be looking at some things that are going to be in opposition to all that has been going on. And this opposition is a result of another event that took place that we looked at last time in chapter 3. Where in chapter 3 we saw that Peter and John were walking into the temple, in through the area known as the court of the Gentiles, and as they were approaching the gate into the court of women, which only Israelite People, both men and women, could enter through. No Gentiles could go beyond that. It was called the Golden Gate or the Beautiful Gate. There was a beggar who had been born lame. 
We'll find out in our study today that he was at least 40 years old or more, and he had been on that same spot every single day. His family brought him and laid him at that gate so he could beg, hoping for people to express their sense of mercy on him and offering him some money so that he could live. It was an accepted method by many who were in that kind of condition. And everybody would have to go by him to get into the inner courts where they would come to worship the Lord. So he had a very favored spot at that beautiful gate. And along come Peter and John. And as we mentioned the last time, how many times did they go by that individual? How many times did perhaps Jesus walk by that individual? We know that Jesus healed many, many people. And in the temple precincts, everybody knew that. But Peter and John are now coming into the temple and they see this man again. And something tells Peter, stop and speak to this one. And I believe that it was the moving of the Holy Spirit upon Peter with a gift of knowledge that that man was going to be healed of his inability to walk. And so as Peter looked down on him, remember Peter said to him, look on us. And the man thought, oh, they're going to give me some money. No, they gave him something far better than that. Peter said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I'll give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he grabbed him by the hand and he lifted him up And he was able to stand on those feet that have never been stood on. His ankle and his feet were strengthened, Luke tells us. He jumped and walked around, leaping and praising the Lord. That is a miracle of miracles. A man who had never been on his feet, now able to move about as though he were the greatest athlete the world had ever known. Apparently, he was so filled with excitement. He was so pumped. Wouldn't you be? I would be. But he was able to do something that he had never, ever been able to do for 40 plus years. Think about that. And as a result of that miracle, as Peter and John then entered with him into the inner court, they came to a place known as Solomon's Porch. It's a great large colonnade in the inner court where they stood and began again to preach Peter's second sermon. What do you suppose your response might have been to all of those events? Think of it this way. Picture yourself as a member of the Jewish faith. You know the Word of God, the Old Testament. You know the promises that have been read to you in the synagogues all your life. You know something about the law what the requirement of God is under the law. You knew in order to be able to enter into a relationship with your God that you had to be obedient to all the commands of the law, all 600 plus laws written in the Old Testament by Moses in the first five books of the Bible. They had to be adhered to, not just the Ten Commandments. We're talking about all of the law, the sacrificial law, the dietary laws, all of the law, you had to obey. They all knew that. And they all knew that none of them were actually able to do it in a way that it is prescribed for them to do. So they would come and they would offer sacrifices. It was a requirement of the law for them to do that. Various kinds of sacrifices were offered on a daily basis. Some were obligatory. Others were voluntary. But they all knew that if they needed to and wanted to enter into a communion with God, they had to offer what was known as a sin offering or a peace offering. And either of those were indeed voluntary offerings under the law, but they pointed to something, as did the obligatory offerings as well. All of the blood sacrifices, and there were many, pointed to something of great significance. The writer of Hebrews tells us very specifically 
that all of those sacrifices were a shadow. We call it a type, a picture, a shadow of something that was to be completed, fulfilled in some way by the Lord at some future date. Well, I submit to you that that date that they were looking forward to had just arrived because Jesus was the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament scriptures that pointed to His sacrificial death on the cross, His substitutionary shedding of His blood instead of the substitute of a lamb shedding its blood for the person's sins, this true Lamb of God now has come once for all, the writer of Hebrews tells us, and shed His own blood for the redemption of all. Once for all. No more need for sacrifice. Now Peter has this very, very certainty that is being presented to this group of people based on what they have just observed. This man has been miraculously raised up on his feet for the first time in over 40 years, and Peter uses it in a very profound and powerful way to present the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died and was raised again by the Lord. And he makes an accusation in that presentation in chapter 2, in verse 23, where he says, you, the people that he was talking to, you crucified him, but God raised him up. And as a result of his preaching of the resurrection at that first moment, in his preaching experience, 3,000 souls were saved. Now in chapter 4, we see again Peter having raised this one up. He has another opportunity to preach the same message. And he's in the portico, portico of Solomon in that temple area. And he's proclaiming the same message. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. What you see here, this man standing before you, is able to stand before you not by Peter's ability to raise him up, but by the Lord's ability to raise him up. He gives God the credit, does not take any credit for himself. That's so very important. Last time, we looked at chapter 3 extensively. And I guess I could say we should consider the fact that we only touched the surface of it, but one of the things that I pointed out was there are characteristics about Peter that we need to look at seriously and consider that perhaps those characteristics are those kinds of characteristics that are expected by God of us. The first characteristic was that Peter was a man of prayer. We already looked at that in the end of chapter 2 where it tells us that they were coming together for prayer. He was a man of prayer. And again in Acts chapter 6 verse 4, it tells us Peter says that he and his fellow apostles would be always devoting themselves continually to prayer in the ministry of the Word. He was a man of prayer. He was also a man of faith. It took a great deal of faith for Peter to reach out to this man who could not walk and take him by the hand and rise, raise him up saying, you're going to walk. By faith, Peter knew that that was going to happen because the Lord gave him that gift of faith to know that that would take place. Amazing thing. A man of faith. A man of prayer. He was a man of humility because, again, he did not take credit for all of these things. He turned to the Lord and he said, it's because of what Jesus Christ has done, what God the Father has done through His Son, that this man stands before you whole. He would not take credit for it. He humbled himself as just a servant of the living God. He would not allow anyone to give him credit for what he did not deserve credit for. Lastly, he was a man of boldness. It took a great deal of boldness for him to make those statements before all of those people. He was a man of the Word. Because when he gave that presentation, it wasn't just an argument based on no facts. It was an argument based on the Bible. He used the Old Testament Scriptures as a basis for what he was saying. That's important. Those are things, those are characteristics that we all should be all able to emulate. And I hope that we do as believers in Jesus Christ. But here in chapter 4, because of what was going on in chapter 3, there was a great deal of commotion. And the commotion happened because of a group of individuals who were opposed 
to the message that Peter was giving. It just so happens that those people were the religious leaders of the day. Sometimes the greatest opposition that the church has to face are religious people in the church. Take note of the fact that these individuals that we'll be looking at today were devoted to the study of God's Word. Paul says it this way, they had a zeal for God, but they denied His power. That was their problem. What we're talking about here are a group of leaders in Jerusalem who were very highly respected. There was a group of 71 leaders in Jewry. They were known as the Sanhedrin. Most of those who were in that particular group were known as Sadducees. There were some Pharisees as well, but the majority of them were Sadducees. The distinction between those two groups is this. The Pharisees were a very legalistic group of men who adhered to all of the Old Testament, especially adhering to the commands of God given by Moses. But they believed in the resurrection. They believed in miracles. They believed in spiritual realm. The Sadducees, on the other hand, would have nothing to do with those spiritual aspects of the Word of God. They only accepted what Moses said about the law, but they disregarded all of the other things. They refused to accept the statements that are made in the prophets throughout the rest of the Old Testament regarding the Messiah, regarding angelic beings, regarding the raising of men from the dead. They would not accept anything to do with the resurrection. In fact, they had confronted Jesus at one point. You may remember in your studies of the New Testament gospel records where the Sadducees came to Jesus and challenged them, challenged him rather, and they said, look, I'd like you to tell us what you think about this. There was a woman who was married and her husband died. She got remarried and that husband died. And so it was that she had seven husbands. And they all died. Now, in the resurrection, and I'm sure they said that tongue-in-cheek because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they said, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For she had seven husbands. And Jesus' response was amazing. He said, you guys know nothing about the power of God nor about the Word of God. What a slam to those who were students of the Word of God, who thought themselves very, very much in favor of the Lord because they were all the ones who held such high positions among all the people. Among those were Caiaphas and Annas. You may also remember those names because they were both involved in the mock trial of Jesus Christ. They're going to be here in the story. So we have a confrontation. We have here before us great opposition by very, very important men. Caiaphas was considered to be the high priest still, although the Roman government took him out of that office and replaced him with his son-in-law, Annas. And Annas was a real crook. He stole, he made so much money out of merchandising the poor people of Israel, in the temple. These men were not what you would say holy in today's standards, but they were considered to be the holy men of God among the people of Israel in their day. Let's turn to the Word of God and let's see what will result as they bring this Argument that Peter had just made regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ before this group of individuals who know nothing of that power of God. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus 
the resurrection from the dead. So here's the reason why they're coming against Peter and John. Because they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were Sadducees, including the priests and the captain of the temple, who was, by the way, second in command under the high priest, Annas, and he was very much in line with the philosophy that Annas had with regard to the Scriptures. He and the rest of those with him came against Peter and John as they were preaching in the temple about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because they were preaching the resurrection, they said, we've got to put an end to this. It was contrary to everything they were standing for. If people would begin to listen to these men, then everything that they were were representing as their leaders of the people of the Jews would be thrown out. They needed to stop this in their minds. What they really needed to do was accept it. But they would not. It says in verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, remember back in the last chapter, we saw that Peter and John entered into the temple grounds at the ninth hour of the day, which is 3 p.m. All of the time that they took from that moment until they were put into jail, basically, was a period of about two to three hours. Now, the reason they put them in jail is because they couldn't try them at night. It was just one of their regulations that they adhered to. The only exception was when they took Jesus and began to try Him in the middle of the night. They didn't have the right to do that legally, but they did it anyway. But with Peter and John... They didn't appear to be as much of a threat as Jesus was. Jesus, they knew they had to get rid of. These men were just a couple of country hicks from Galilee. They were unschooled men. We'll see that that's their impression of these men as we read further. So they took them and they put them in jail because the law says that it's not legal for them to have a court hearing in the nighttime. They had to wait till the next morning. So they incarcerated them. They put them in jail. And they waited until morning of the next day. Verse 4 says, However, many of those who heard the word believed. And guess how many are now in the church? It tells us the number of the men who heard the word and received the word were about 5,000. Now, there are some who say, well, that only means that 2,000 were added to the original 3,000. Others say, no, no, that means that there were 5,000 more that were added to the church. Either way, that's a huge number of people coming to the Lord. Whether it's 5,000 or 8,000, it's a large number of Jews who are saying, this must be so. I remember when I was 30 years old, and I had the gospel presented to me when I was that age. I knew nothing about, though I was a Catholic, I was in the church more than I was not. I didn't know anything about the truth of the gospel message until I heard it from the lips of these men who really knew the truth. And when I heard them proclaiming the truth of God, I came to the conclusion that those 5,000 or 8,000 men came to, this must be so. That's how it was for me. It was such an easy decision. I realized that I couldn't refute what was being said. And as a result, I had to make that commitment. And I'm glad I did. It changed my life. And it has so many of us. A decision for Christ to believe what He has done for us. Paid a price that none of us could have paid. The writer of the Proverbs tells us about the fact that that the, the ransom of men is costly. And you can't afford it. It's beyond your ability. But it has been paid by another. That's the truth. He is our ransom. He has paid the price. He took care of that debt that you could not take care of. Five thousand men. Not counting women and children, but five thousand men. Or eight are now in the church, born-again believers in Jesus Christ. That was upsetting to these Sadducees 
to these members of the Sanhedrin because they'd never seen such things as this before. And it scared them. What was happening is all of their income was being shifted to another. Everything that they were getting from the people was being diminished. And they didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that they were no longer the object of praise of all of those many, many thousands of people. They needed to do something. So it came to pass, it says in verse 5, on the next day that the rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, John and Alexander we know nothing about, but Caiaphas and Annas we do, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. So that's a large group of men. And they're all opposed to what is being done. So they have a Sanhedrin meeting. In verse 7, a court case begins. When they set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Now that is legitimate. They're holding a religious court. And one of the things that Moses told them in the Old Testament Scriptures, written by Moses, is that if a prophet comes before you and a miracle is done or he makes a prophetic statement, if that prophetic statement does not come true, then you are to stone him. Or if that miracle that he has done is done in some other name other than the God that they served, then he is a false prophet and is to be stoned. So they're asking a legitimate legal question in this court case. By what name, by what power have you done these things? They're not denying that something miraculous had done, been done. They know that something miraculous has been done. In fact, we'll see that the man who was healed is standing before them and they know without any doubt that a miracle has taken place. They just want to know by what power. By what authority? And that gives Peter another opportunity to preach another sermon. I love this about Peter. Think back about Peter's time with Jesus. Was Peter always a man of power? A man of the Word? Confident before opposition? Well, the answer to all of that is no, he wasn't. He feared for his life when Jesus was arrested. He hid with all of the other apostles who had been with Jesus for three and a half years. He denied Christ during the hearing, not before the Sanhedrin, but before a common slave girl. He was scared. But he repented. And Jesus had already warned him about those things when Jesus told him, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. But after you have recovered from that, after you have been restored, it was given to Peter the responsibility to help his brothers. And so now we have Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, standing before this group of Sanhedrin and boldly proclaiming, as he had done earlier before the masses, this group of people who would be very intimidating to stand in front of had no power over him whatsoever. They thought that they did, and we'll see that as we continue on. But Peter and John were bold in their faith. And that's another characteristic, again, that we mentioned earlier, they were bold. They had boldness before the people. Now they have a great deal of boldness as well before this powerful group of men. By what power? You want to know by what power? Peter says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, notice that the Holy Spirit filled him, and he was able to speak. I suggest to you that we need the filling of the Holy Spirit every day moment of our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. We need the power of the Holy Spirit because without Him we can do nothing. That's the words of Jesus. I believe it to be so. 
We can't do anything in our own strength, by our own intellect. It is all by the Spirit of God that we can present the Word of God to others who need to hear it. And it's by faith that faith is what drives people to Christ. And they can only have faith if they hear. Faith comes by the hearing and hearing by the Word of God. They're preaching the Word of God, Peter in particular. He says he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, and that's what they're doing, they're judging him for having done a miracle. Kind of strange that they would be so adamantly opposed to that. But they were. And he recognizes that fact, so he uses that as the beginning of what he has to say next. He says, this is what has been taking place. You saw it, you know, it's to be, you know it to be so, but let it be known to you now, all of you, and all of the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by him, this man stands here before you He's saying the same thing to the group of Sanhedrin, very powerful leaders of the Hebrew nation, that he said to the people in his first message. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. That's daring. That's amazing. That a man who was once so afraid to even look out the window to make sure that there's nobody coming his way after the death of Christ, when the resurrection took place and he had become aware of that power that was demonstrated by that resurrection that Jesus had accomplished, he now, being filled with the Holy Spirit, is able to proclaim without any fear. There's nothing that these people can do to him. He has no reason to think. No reason to think they have anything on him. And they didn't. He's committed. He's a man who is committed to his Lord, even if it meant death. He knows that this same group of people put Jesus to death. It was because of their judgment that they brought him before Pilate. And he had no doubt that they could do that same thing with him and John and all of the others who were with them. It didn't matter. Don't fear what man can do to you in this body This body is temporary. They can kill the body, but they can't destroy the soul. The soul is eternal. They knew that. They were confident. He says, God raised him from the dead. And it's by that man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that you see this man standing here before you whole. So notice, he says, this man that you're stand, that's standing near you, he's, he's there. He's in their midst. They see him. They know it is the same one who had been begging for alms at the gate beautiful all of those 40 years. And then Peter begins again to refer to Old Testament Scriptures. I love this about Peter. He backs everything he says up by the precious Word of God that he knew so very, very well. He says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. He's referring here to Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. They all were familiar with that verse. It was a very well-known messianic psalm, Psalm 118. There was no question that those men knew exactly what Peter is referring to, but he's applying it here to Jesus Christ as being that stone which they rejected. They didn't get that connection, but he did, and he's presenting that connection to them now very powerfully and matter-of-factly. He is saying this is that which was prophesied by David in this psalm that we've just quoted. And then in verse 12 he says, Now is there salvation in no other... For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Listen, people, this is a simple truth. It is doctrine. It is 
absolute because it's the Word of God. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Buddha can't save you. Muhammad can't save you. Hare Krishna can't save you. President Biden, well, no, of course we can't save you. Nobody can save you other than this one, the Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the only one. That's why Jesus said of Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. Does that sound narrow? Well, yes, it is. In fact, it's very narrow. Well, that's not fair. Why do you think it's not fair? If you do. The point is, it's amazing to me that He even provides a way. Any way. But He has provided a way. So why not take advantage of that way instead of going your own way? Isaiah 53 talks about all we have gone astray, everyone to his own way. If you want to continue on your own path that you want to make so that you can think, you think you may be able to stand before God and say, hey, look at me, look at what I did. I tithed. I went to church all the time. I was a good student in children's church. Yeah, I made a few mistakes, but I'm sure that you'll overlook that because I was such a good person. Look at all of the wonderful things that I did for others. You're going to hear the words, Get behind me, I never knew you. Jesus says, There's only one way to the Father. He said, I am the gate. That gate is narrow. I don't know about you, but I want to go through that narrow gate. I want to stay on that narrow path instead of the wide road that leads to destruction. All of those things point to one simple fact. There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Paul tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. I believe that's going to be so, ultimately. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved, by the way. That just simply means that those of us who have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior gladly bow the knee to His Lordship over us. We gladly proclaim Him to be King of Kings. We gladly proclaim that He is our Savior. We gladly proclaim that our sins are forgiven, that we have been cleansed from all unrighteousness, that we have been set free from the bondage of sin. We all proclaim that we are indeed born-again believers in the risen Savior. And there is no other Christian but one who is a born-again Christian. I remember when I was first saved and I was... At my home, I had been, before that, involved in a young men's organization, and I had several of the guys that were part of that organization come to visit with me because they wanted me to start a chapter of that organization where I was now living in Brunswick. And so they came to me hoping to get me to begin that effort. And I said, no, I'm not going to bother with that anymore because it's really contrary to what I am all about now. And I started talking about Christianity, and one of them said, you mean to tell me you're one of those born-again Christians? <laughs> My response is, and it was true, and it is still true, there's no other kind of Christian. Jesus himself said, you must be born again. I believe what Jesus said. I believe that he is the only way. I believe that he is the truth, that he is the life. I believe he is the word of God, and that he is the son of God, and he is still seated on the throne and will come again for His church. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's what makes me to be what every one of us should be. Born again believers in the living power of Jesus' name. He's living. He's risen from the dead. And we should be so very excited about that that everyone we come into contact with will know based on what we not only say, but how we present ourselves in this world. We're to shine the light, are we not? Then let us shine the light. Let us be faithful to make sure that others know that we are indeed truly changed and for the much better. There is no salvation in any other name. That's what Peter says. I agree, Peter. Pour it on. This group of Sadducees, this great high court of the Hebrew nation, they needed to hear it. 
So does every one of us. I could stop there, but there's so much more in this chapter. So let's read on. Verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Oh, that explains it. These guys were the ones who were with Jesus all the time that He was on this world and everything that He did They were following after Him. They knew Him. They walked with Him. They lived with Him for three and a half years. Yes, they were with Jesus, but I submit to you, they still were. And so are we with Jesus here today in this room who know Him as our Savior. Yeah, it is true. They were with Jesus. But they were not uneducated. They were not untrained They had the greatest rabbi the world has ever known in their midst. Oh, to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from Him. What a privilege. What a benefit it would be if we could have sat like Mary did at His feet as He gave instruction from the Word of God. Many people who heard Him said, no man has taught like this. And that was true. No man had. He was able, and because He was the Son of God and He was the source, the originator of this Word that He was proclaiming, He knew what needed to be said. He knew what was true and what was not. And He conveyed those truths to His disciples. What a seminary training that must have been for those men. Unfortunately, they didn't have this kind of uh, seminaries that we have in this present age. But they didn't require a degree to proclaim the truth. They didn't require attendance in the schools of Jerusalem under the leadership of the well-known teachers of that, that day in Jerusalem. Remember, Nicodemus was one of those teachers. And Nicodemus didn't have a clue when he came to Jesus and asked, well, we know that you're a man of God because of the things that you do. And Jesus said to him, a man must be born again. And Nicodemus said, what are you talking about? What do you mean born again? Does, does it mean that I have to enter my mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said, no, no, no. You, I, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know what I mean by this? So this man, a great teacher, a well-known teacher, didn't have a clue. He knew the letter of the law, but he didn't know the spirit of the law. And there's a grand difference. We all need to know the spirit of the law, and the spirit of the law gives life. The spirit of the law is all about Jesus. Everything in the Word of God points to Him. Everything. But these men didn't think that the two men standing before them, Peter and John, had any intelligent understanding of the Word of God. After all, they were Galileans. They were from the rural communities up north from the county. Some of you from the county here today, but don't take that seriously. Peter and John. It's interesting that uneducated and untrained men, in the Greek, untrained men is where we get the word idiot. Uneducated is where we get the word ignoramus. Not very complimentary, but that's what they thought of these hicks from the north. They were untrained. They were really just simply not worth listening to because they didn't really have anything up here. They thought that those men would quiver at the judgment that was about to happen. But they were marveling, nonetheless, at the fact that these men had such great sense of authority in their words. They were really very caught off guard, if you will. 
They didn't expect these men to be able to say such things and be able to present such things before such an intimidating group of leaders in Jerusalem. They marveled. Then verse 14 says, And seeing that the man who had been healed was standing with them, they could say nothing against it. See, they had no defense. Their offense had been taken away. They were absolutely blown away. The case that they thought they were going to be able to bring against these men has now been completely blown out the doors. So in verse 15 it says, When they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves and they said, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak no, to no man in this name. Now, how do you suppose this got put into the Word of God? They went into the secret council. They closed the doors, and they began speaking among themselves. What are we going to do with these guys? And it's recorded for us here by Luke. Somehow then, Luke must have gotten that information from an insider. It's very possible that one of those insiders may have been Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin at the time. Paul, the the apostle. Luke traveled with him for many, many distance or miles rather, and, and he must have heard a lot of information from the lips of Paul. And I believe that perhaps Paul might have been the source of this very, very important set of words that are given to us by Luke. It tells us what they did behind closed doors. But they didn't want this to spread. They wanted to figure out some way of preventing that from happening. And so they figured, well, these are only hicks from the north country, so listen, what we need to do is threaten them. That's what it will take. They won't say another word if we threaten them with their lives because they're just country bumpkins. So that it spread no further, again, verse 17, let us severely threaten them. That means let us tell them that if you keep on doing this, you're dead. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. So there. That would frighten me. Would it frighten you? It didn't frighten John. It didn't frighten Peter. And the reason it didn't frighten either of them is because, again, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told His apostles, His disciples, His followers... You are going to stand before the leaders. And he says, when you do, not if, but when you do, don't worry about what you're going to say. Because the Holy Spirit will tell you, will give you the words. Peter and John were very much aware that it wasn't through them that those words had come. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit that those words had come. So they're confident. They know that nothing these leaders are going to do or say can bring any harm to them because they were following and obeying the command of the Lord. So again in verse 19 we find Peter's answer. He says, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Listen, leaders. Listen, high priest. Listen, Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes in attendance here today. Nothing can stop the propagation of God's word. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And if you intend for me to stop proclaiming the truth, you've got another thing coming. 
you can cut out my tongue and I'll find a way still to propagate the Word of God. I'm compelled, just like Paul said, I'm compelled to proclaim the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm compelled by His Holy Spirit to let people know that He is my Savior, that He is the One who has brought me such great liberty to stand before the mass of people that come in front of me or wherever I may be to be able to say to them, this is the truth. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to hear. This is what you need to believe in. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You need to hear it. If you're going to be able to hear it, then you need to open your ears. You need to open your eyes to see. You need to soften your heart to receive. And when you do, the Lord will fill you with such great love and peace and joy that is so far beyond your expectations, so much better than you could ever, ever know. It's available to all. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He comes and He gives those great gifts to us. What a great and mighty God we serve. But what must I do to be saved? Just believe. There's nothing more involved than receiving what has been presented to you. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They were compelled to do so. This is civil disobedience, isn't it? The authorities were saying, don't do it. They were saying, that ain't going to happen because there's a greater authority in my life. And that greater authority supersedes anyone's authority if it contradicts what that greater authority says. And that's the standard by which we base all of what we do with regard to the defense of the gospel, the way we live our lives. If people come to us and say, this is what you have to do, and it's contrary to what the Word of God says, then I'm going to stick with what the Word of God says and I'll go to jail for it if I have to. If they say I've got to speak well of the homosexual community, I'll speak well of the homosexual, but I will not speak well of the sin of the homosexual. And if that's going to put me into prison, then so be it. Don't think for a moment that some things like this will not take place in our society. It's already happening in Canada, and I believe it's going to be soon before long that we'll start seeing some of that as well here in this country. We are no longer a Christian nation, and we are in trouble if we continue down the path that we are headed. We are not accepting the LBGT lifestyle as being a normal way of living. Now that rubs people the wrong way, admittedly. But this is the Word of God. God condemns homosexuality. God condemns living together with the same sex. God condemns premarital sex. God condemns sin. And it doesn't have to be any of those. It could be just simply a little white lie. Do you realize that that also is condemned by God just as much as the homosexual activities of those who are involved in that lifestyle. This is the situation that we must propagate the truth in. There is none of us, no, not one, not one person who has ever lived who is without sin. That's what the Word of God says. Well, I've never done anything really wrong. Well, listen, if you have coveted, as Paul says, that coveting is a sin. And that coveting is what slayed Paul. And it's so for you as well. Well, I've never coveted either. Oh, yeah, I've told a few white lies. Well, so what? It tells us not to bear false witness. So, aren't you sinning? Yes, you are. And that sin is just as bad as the murderer in God's eyes. It separates you from God. Anything that separates you from God is sin. Now, you might think that because you're such a good person, as I said earlier, you could get your way into heaven. Well, I think I've done enough to, to justify my being able to stand before the Lord on my own merit. Listen, how do you know how much is enough? Where do you get your numbers? Where do you base your facts on? Who are you comparing yourself to? Your neighbors? Yeah, well, they're a bunch of drunks over there. Of course, I'm better than they are. Sure, God would look at me in favor instead of them. No, He doesn't look at you in favor at all. No 
not one. Remember those words. There's only one way. It's through Jesus Christ. And we proclaim it. We believe it. We emphasize the need for all to come by faith in that one fact alone. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard, he says. In verse 21, he goes on to say, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. They were afraid of the response of the people. So they were protecting their own skin. But they didn't want to release these men and let them continue doing what they were doing. So again, they threatened them. They threatened them again. Make sure you don't. Teach about Jesus. We'll let you go because we're nice guys and we don't want to let you think that we're really afraid of you. But they were. Verse 22 says, For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Now they were released. So what do you think they did? They could have been obedient and just gone home and no longer spoke about this Jesus Christ, this resurrection from the dead. They could have kept it to themselves. They could have been what most of us commonly would say closet Christians would do. Oh, I believe in Jesus, but I keep it to myself. I don't need to let everybody know that I'm a believer, but I do believe. Yep, I believe in God, but I'm not going to make a public statement about it. Oh, how sad. How sad. They couldn't stop. And neither should we. Peter and John and the others, they come back among the brethren that are gathered together. In verse 23 it says, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, You are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of Your servant David had said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. That's Psalm 2. Again, quoting the Old Testament Scriptures in their prayer. It's a good method of praying, by the way. Remind God of what He has already said. That's a good habit to fall into on a regular basis. Lord, and by the way, we don't use the Word of God in our prayers to to let God know that this is what He said. He already knows that. It's a good reminder for us. It's for our benefit, not for God's benefit that we pray such prayers. But it's important that we do. I'm convinced that it's right for us to pray things like David said, Lord, it's time for you to act for they regard your law as void. I'm convinced that it's right for us to say, let all the peoples praise you. I'm convinced that it is right for us to say, therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return unto Zion. I'm convinced that it is right for us to say, I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I'm convinced that it is right for us to pray to God with those kinds of things that remind us of His power in our lives to accomplish His perfect will through us. That's what they are praying here. And he says further in verse 27, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined for to be done. What's he saying? They crucified Jesus, and it was God's will for that to happen. Remember, he was a substitute. It was needful for him to go to the cross. And it was God's purpose, his plan to do that, which needed to be done in order to have him to become our ransom. He says in verse 29, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And here's the result of their prayer. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We're not told how many were there in that one meeting place. 
But we know that this is the moving of God in the lives of those who put their faith and trust in Him. That the Holy Spirit will indeed fill us. I'm convinced of that. We need to be filled daily. Paul himself, remember, said, Be not drunk with wine, but be constantly filled over and over with the Spirit of God. And so it must be for us. And as a result of their having been filled with the Spirit, they spoke the Word of God with boldness. They could not be stopped. That's a challenge for us who believe. What would stop me? What would stop you from proclaiming God's Word? Would persecution? Would threat of death? Dismemberment? Jail time? Taking away of all your possessions? What would prevent you from speaking the truth in this present hour? My prayer is that there would be nothing that man can do. There should not be. And we need the filling of the Holy Spirit, those of us who believe, to continue to represent Him as His ambassadors. That's who we are. If we believe in Jesus Christ, that's who we will remain to be in these last days. Would you pray with me?